Um, can I help you at all? No, thanks. I'll just look around. Fine. Uh, that book's really not great. Just in case, you know, browsing turned to buy. Uh, you'd be wasting your money. But if it's turkey you're interested in, um, this one, on the other hand, is very good. Um, I think the man who wrote it has actually been to Turkey, which helps. Um, there's also a very amusing incident with a kebab, um, which is one of many amusing incidents. Thanks, I'll think about it. The bookshop. The shop that forms a special part of local communities and often films. In the case you've just heard, Notting Hill. But it's also a shop that until recently threatened to disappear. Its world turned upside down by the arrival of Amazon, the Kindle and eBooks. Now, however, bookshops are making a comeback with new shops opening in the UK and abroad. One man has played a special role in that revival, James Dawn. You're listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick, a podcast that takes a second look at stories from the past and asks, what can we learn from them today? In this episode, we speak to James Daunt, who has played a key role in reviving bookshops in the UK and the US. First, he founded Daunt Books, the independent book chain. Then, in 2011, he became the boss of Waterstones, and rescued the UK-wide chain. In 2019, he went across the Atlantic and became boss of Barnes & Noble, and he did the same there as well. We'll ask him how he did it, and we'll also ask him how he achieved what few in business or entertainment have managed, to find success on both sides of the Atlantic. It's much sort of simpler than perhaps it, it might appear from a distance. We are literally and simply trying to create better bookshops. And the problem with the established model for chain booksellers, be that Waterstones in the old days or, or Barnes & Noble before I arrived, that they ran terrible bookstores because of the sort of core retailing principles that they followed. And those were sensible retailing principles that are very successfully pursued by almost every other retailer, which is you want consistency and a homogenous retail experience. If you walk into Zara, you kind of want to have the Zara experience. You want the full range of Zara clothing and you want it to be very neatly presented and consistently. You want to know what you're doing. If you walk into Boots, you want to be able to find the shampoo in the same sort of place and the same sort of ranges and you want it really consistent and, and easy to shop. And that's true of pretty much every retailer. The trouble is, if you do that with bookstores, you end up with very uh, uniform, obviously, by definition, because that's what you're setting out to do, but very uniform bookstores that are inherently boring and inherently a sort of blended average of sort of everything, which means that for the very different communities in which we have our bookstores and the very different communities of people that come into our bookshops, that none of them are satisfied. I mean, that, that this identical bookstore is, is inherently a bad one. And a lot of the principles which kept it so consistent and so uniform are directly counter to the principles of good bookselling. Um, and that range from 
effectively giving the curation of the store over to publishers and basically saying nothing really different to like if you want to be in the front of our shops if you want to be on a table in a display in a window you've got to pay for it you know the price for this slot is this you know, absolutely a rate of expense and cost for every single position in the front of the shop uh, which means that your bookshop is defined by what publishers are prepared to pay for not what is actually good or what your booksellers want to sell or what the readers ship of any individual bookshop want to buy and the nature of what publishers have money behind is that they will put it behind you know, the the fairly commercial the fairly banal and the fairly generic and and you do literally end up with stores that are papered from front to back with the same authors just to illustrate what happens with this is the bestsellers when i joined barnes and noble and you walked in and they have a bestseller a ranking right there and what's on the tables were the same authors that had been there 20 years earlier they're good authors but but it's literally the same ones it's james patterson it's michael connelly quite a few of them actually are no longer alive it's it's a trademark virginia andrews tm and there aren't just like one title from them. There's like five or six because they're producing a book every couple of months. Now, that does not create an interesting bookstore. And if you apply those same principles of homogeneity across all of your sections as well, you, you really end up with, with something that is terrible. And because it's terrible, you don't sell very much and your sales drop. And so you try and compensate that by piling into your store all the things that you, you think may redeem some of those sales, and they tend to not be books. So you end up with an increasingly desperate array of all sorts of rubbish that is not a book. You speak with such clarity there and, and, and make it sound so straightforward. Why weren't bookshops doing that? I think it's if you're run by retailers who are used to running other retail businesses and with all the disciplines that are required, you can't follow that principle. You're not prepared to accept the disparities and the individual personalities that you get within shops. Because that's that's absolutely not what is in your DNA. It's not what is in your retail training. And I think you quite literally don't understand it. You also probably don't have the courage to give up the money that comes through the established model. And I don't think in turn, the publishing industry would have been prepared to itself cooperate and support a different model. So everybody actually liked the established way of doing things. For, there, were, there are huge benefits for publishers if they spend you know, a million dollars, $10 million on a, on a book. They want to know it's going to get into every single bookstore. They want to know it's in the front of the store. They want to know, actually, that they can make it number one, two, three, four on the bestseller list simply by writing a check. Generally, those things become self-fulfilling prophecies. It took out an immense amount of risk out of the publishing side of the business, and publishers ran effectively and dominate the retail side. In other retail sectors, the retailer tends to have the power. In, in book selling, it's not. It's the supplier. It's the publisher who has the power. Now, that, I, I think, until first Waterstones and then Barnes & Noble actually went bankrupt as the last standing major chains nobody was prepared to give up that position so i think it's sort of partly the traditions of corporate retailing that was at fault and partly it was the structure of the industry and it needed an almighty shock to allow that to be disrupted 
it's pretty nuts to have a large chain Waterstones put in the hands of, of an independent bookseller. You know, that, that doesn't happen unless you've reached the end of the road and there's just no other options. James Daunt founded Daunt Books in 1990 when he was just 26 years old. His first shop was in Marylebone, London. He'd been a banker at JP Morgan and had a successful career ahead of him. But his girlfriend at the time, now his wife, encouraged him to change careers. Banking is inherently about as boring as it can get, except for the people who are, who are bankers. And for them, it's completely fascinating. And I certainly found it fascinating, but it isn't something that translates outside of the banking community. And she didn't sort of kind of think that working in New York, being a banker or working in London, being a banker was something that she wanted to be to be part of. Um, and then once I left the bank, I then had to sort of think, well, you know, that that was for me was a, a, a completely fabulous office job. And if I wasn't going to have an office job, then I needed to do something for myself. And that better be attached to things that I found interesting, she found interesting. And, and books and reading were core to that. Happily, we, we, we married and still are married. So there, there is a happy ending to it all as well. <laughs> how did how did you start then? So once you'd made a decision that this is what you were going to do, how did you start? Um, I raised some money under something called the Business Expansion Scheme, which was a really sensible scheme that, that doesn't exist sadly anymore, which allowed people to invest in into a new business and get a tax break on it. And it allowed a, what was, I was then probably 24, or 25, you know, to go around and with a begging bowl and say, look, I want to set up a bookshop. And if you put a bit of money in, you can be a shareholder and you'll get some tax back on it. And I think their capital gains was also protected. It was just a, it, it was a, it was a nice tax efficient way for people to invest in, in new businesses. I did that. Uh, bookshops are very, very capital intensive. They're expensive to fit out and they carry a more stock than I think almost any other retailer. Therefore, the working capital investment is huge. So I, I needed that outside capital. And I opened up the bookshop and it was a total disaster. And I worked uh, quite hard for quite a long time to bring it back from the brink of disaster, which again was a, was, was a very helpful lesson. Um, it was a disaster not because I set up a bad bookshop, but, but I set it up. In 1990, there was a big retail recession. All, all the neighbouring shops closed. Um, there was no football. It was a really, really difficult time then. Nasty, nasty little retail recession. Um, and then, you know, once once that worked its way through, the business began to to thrive. How did you get through that period? So this 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 the shop was it was the original Marylebone shop that, that you still have today. So how how did you get it through what was, as you say, I mean, some big retail names were wiped out by that recession in the early 1990s. How did you manage to get through it? Uh, I think sheer hard work was important. I had um, had a very nice and supportive mentor who was sort of wise and and helped me sort of stay calm. Somebody called Bill Keatley, who, who sadly is, is no longer with us, um, was one of the early investors. He'd invested under the business expansion scheme, but he did much more than that. He would you know, come and, and give moral support as much as anything else on a, on a very regular basis and gave what was very good advice, which is, you know, stay calm and, and just work your way through it. And a lot of sweat and a bit of luck, you may come out of this. Okay, so just keep at it. Uh, and that proved to be to be very good advice. But but I think also the moral support is extremely important. Was he someone you already knew before? Or was he someone who, who you met when you started up the bookshop? 
he was i went round with a, a business plan to raise the money and and he was actually a stockbroker and he with some of his clients and colleagues put in a, a decent amount of the money so he was in, he was a very experienced person who then became i, I would say a, a close friend and certainly huge support in 1994 just as daunt box was finding its feet jeff bezos founded amazon in seattle the book industry would never be the same again. I knew that it was dramatically impactful pretty quickly. I also assumed, clearly, totally wrongly, that the faster they grew and the more dramatically they grew, the more spectacular their inevitable bankruptcy was going to be because they were operating at a loss and that was allowing them to grow at this extraordinary rate. And that, you know, the more money... You know, the, the, the higher your revenues you're driving and the more money you're losing, that sort of tends to end in bankruptcy. And, and indeed, one could see that going on with, with the chain booksellers, Borders and Articas, and you know, all, all of these guys were expanding really fast and, and one after another getting into big trouble. And I kind of assumed that um, Bezos was going to have the same fate. Um, <laughs> but no, he ran fast enough to get ahead of it. But I also always took a view that it was sort of kind of didn't matter that if anyone who's encouraging reading and driving the ownership of books is probably longer term going to be a good thing for real bookshops. And there are plenty of other things that were going on that, that were also sort of somewhat alarming. The supermarkets began to sell books in a big way. Tesco's, Sainsbury's, Asda became sort of serious players in the book market. But all of that meant more people would have books in their homes. And that was our biggest hurdle, was to, to encourage people to buy books. And you know, I, I grew up in a very well-educated literary household, but we didn't own many books. You know, we, we went down to the library to get our books, and there was less money around then. But with, with increasing prosperity, we both needed education to, to drive more readership, but also the habit of book ownership. Amazon was doing that. So I, I whilst I sort of looked at them with sort of some <laughs> alarm, I, I've always been positive on, on their impact on, on the wider industry. And that if you run a good bookshop, you're fine, whether you're big or small. And the problem with the chains was they were becoming less and less good. Obviously, one of the things that Amazon eventually launched was the Kindle and, and e-reading. Would it be fair to say that that's passed as a threat to the industry? Uh, that's certainly true. And in fact, you know, the glory days of Kindle and the growth of Kindle was soon after I started at Waterstones and I took on Waterstones. Obviously, that was you know, that. Oh, my goodness. That was a very, very sick business and was effectively bankrupt. And then Kindle took off like a, you know, um, and, and everybody wrote article after article on, on the demise of the physical book and, and bookshops. And my response to that was to go to Seattle and say to Amazon, can we sell the Kindle? We'd be delighted to sell the Kindle in, in our bookshops. And my motivation for doing that, and, and by the way, everybody, <laughs> the number of articles which said I was the biggest numpty that had, had ever existed to hand my customers quite literally to amazon it was it was sort of you know, suicide in plain view but my attitude to that was we needed to normalize kindle that that kindle and, and e-reading was not separate to reading physical books you should do both and that we needed to make people who are embracing the kindle which they were in extraordinary numbers 
not think that they were this was some sort of dirty secret and that now they couldn't be seen in a bookshop because they'd somehow betrayed the bookshop. I wanted them to know that anything that's reading is is fine by us. But, you know, at the end of the day, a physical bookshop is so much a nicer place in which to discover books. And a physical book is a much nicer reading experience. Use your Kindle. It's convenient. It's useful in some circumstances. You don't want to wake the person you're in bed with. Turning a page is intensely irritating. And, you know, a backlit Kindle is nicer and quieter. It's easier on an airplane, perhaps, but not really. You know, stay in the bookshop you know, use your Kindle and keep on buying books. And that, as it happens, was exactly the way people have behaved. And, and we are stronger for e-readers being around, not weaker. James Dawn was appointed the boss of Waterstones in 2011 after Russian businessman Alexander Mamut bought it from HMV. At this point, Waterstones was a mess and many in the book world were baffled as to why it had turned to Daunt to try and save it. Likewise, many were baffled as to why Daunt, who'd made his name running independent bookshops, now wanted to run a nationwide chain. I'm a bookseller, then I've been a bookseller for a long time. I, I really believe in the worth and purpose of, of bookshops. Uh, they don't compare to public libraries, but nonetheless they are important they're really nice things to have within communities and if you once you've lost them you've lost them and there is no way that with the closure of waterstones that we would have ever seen again really good big stockholding bookshops in a lot of the towns of of the united kingdom in in, in the less wealthy parts in particular yes of course there would have been you know dog books would have opened up a big bookshop in Hampstead and um, in Chelsea and in all the leafy places and all the middle class places would have had bookshops eventually. But, you know, Bury, Bolton, Blackpool, the Bees of the Northwest, Grimsby, Scunthorpe, you know, all of these places and would never have had bookshops, Middlesbrough. And you can go on and on. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of towns in which Waterstones has a really big, attractive, well-stocked, welcoming bookshop that would be impossible to conceive of that being ever replaced, certainly not with big, big, welcoming bookshops. And that that was kind of important. And I'm, I'm really pleased that they have been saved. And, that, and it's strange now that, that uh, Russia has its um, has, has the difficulties it does go through. But but that was all due to, you know, frankly, the generosity um, of, of an individual Russian business. Waterstones was sold to Elliott, the US hedge fund, in 2018. Its success has continued. Waterstones is now consistently profitable and it has bought the bookshop chains Foils and Blackwells too. After seeing the success of Waterstones, Elliot looked across the Atlantic at the book industry there and it bought Barnes & Noble, which like Waterstones was a struggling nationwide book chain. Elliot asked Daunt to run it. The reality is that the, the book industry is almost identical on both sides of the Atlantic, but it's run from America, which is, is a dramatically larger market. The, the big publishing businesses are variously owned by Germans and French, and Murdoch owns uh, Harper, which is one of the big ones. But they're all headquartered and run out of New York. And the whole structure of the industry is based on how it runs in the United States. And that obviously is the home of, of Amazon, who is the other sort of huge force within the industry. And 
we needed, and, and I think it's really important that bookshops remain part of that ecosystem. And bookshops disappeared from the United States, as again, the, the demise of Barnes & Noble would have you know, left a, a very small independent sector, but nothing else. That would have probably ended up being reflected in the United Kingdom at some point. Also, we know how to run the bookshops. We know all the reasons why chains get into trouble and why they create bad bookshops. Um, and, and therefore, it, it seemed not straightforward, but, but at least sort of logical to bring those same lessons to, to the United States and, and put Barnes & Noble back on the straight and narrow. The retail industry is, is full of examples of retailers, either brands or individuals who've crossed the Atlantic, thinking that the same idea would work in the US as it did in the UK and have failed. You haven't. You've succeeded. Were you aware when you went over there of the fact that you were treading a path that many others had tried and failed with in the past? And did you adapt in any way to, to the US in order to try and make sure that you did succeed? Well, I think my model is not one that runs any of the risks that, that you've just explained. I mean, if you're Tesco's and you say, look, I know how better than you guys how to run a grocery store. Well, you're either right or you're wrong. Whereas I'm coming in and just saying, okay, guys, let's run decent bookshops. Each of you in your individual store, let's run a good bookshop. I'm not telling you how to do it. What I'm doing is taking away all the impediments to your running a good and interesting bookshop. So let's see how good you are. Get on with it. So I'm not telling people to do it my way or the highway. I'm not trying to impose you know, some sort of Waterstones identical model on it. I'm saying these are the principles of good bookshop and they're the same in Japan as they are in the United States, as they are in Italy, as they are in wherever you choose to go in the world. The same principles apply. We want those now adopted here. Now, our stores are much bigger. The communities are very different. If you're in Alabama, you run a very different bookstore, should run a very different bookstore to if you're on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. That's self-evidently the case. And I'm not telling you how to do either of those two things. What I am saying to the guys in Alabama is, come on, wake up, create a bookshop for your community. It isn't about imposing anything other than, frankly, an autonomy. The turnaround of Waterstones and Barnes & Noble has posed new challenges for the businesses and daunt. Those include staff pushing for higher pay and also publishers and authors becoming upset that their books are not being promoted. There's also questions about the future ownership of the business, given that Elliot has made its name as an aggressive hedge fund rather than the owner of bookshops. So much more is published and there's a dramatic increase in self-publishing as well. And if you're an author, you really want your book in a bookshop. And our job as booksellers is to curate. And we curate now at an individual shop level as well as at a national level. And we spend an awful lot of our time saying, no, that is part of what it is to be a bookseller. With social media, if you want to promote yourself, it's quite a good thing to say. It's an outrage. You know, my masterpiece has been denied any presence in Barnes & Noble, you know, because whatever. And you get your brief moment of fame. The, the truth is you're not in Barnes & Noble because your book isn't good enough. And if it was good enough, we'd have it. And if it was good enough, particularly the gatekeepers of our industry, who are the publishers, would be publishing it. 
Elliot obviously has an interesting reputation as a, as a private equity firm and hedge fund. What have they been like as an owner? Uh, for us, they've been completely fantastic. Um, they backed what was obviously our own sort of strong wish to have Barnes & Noble and, and ensure that that sort of bookselling continued in the United States. They supported us through that early period of COVID. Um, it's not a small thing to say, we know we got all our shops closed. We know we have no idea how long they will be closed for. We want to keep uh, the payroll going and we want to completely rip the place apart. And we're going to invest significant millions in payroll to achieve that. Are you happy with that? Because, you know, the world's on fire and we don't know when we're going to open again. So they're brave um, and they've supported us and they're now allowing us to invest significantly from a capex perspective, refitting a lot of an increasing number of stores, you know, which is which is expensive, but but also opening up new stores. So they're they're putting their money where their mouth is, and and have been a really good owner for us. Is the plan eventually that Waterstones and Barnes and Noble will return to public markets? Um, that's my personal wish. I think that 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 would be a really happy place for us to be as as a really well run sort of solidly profitable business but one that is remains a, a specialist bookseller which in itself has a sort of certain sort of limit to to what it can be done with it but you know at the end of the day you know the, the sole reason i think you're a private equity firm is that you buy something cheap and you sell it expensive uh, or certainly more than you bought it for so i i would assume at some point we will be sold um in in the way that maximizes the profitability of the investment but you know that said as a public company you know we're, we're a really nice business and if you want a good solid dividend from a very very predictable and soundly managed business you know we should be one that can live on the public markets very happily and successfully are books and bookshops here to stay now as sort of thriving heart of a high street because it isn't that long ago that you know the talk about the demise of the book and certainly the bookshop was quite prominent but obviously waterstones and barnes and noble are, are succeeding there are independent bookshops all over the UK and there are in the US as well. People, as you say, read a lot during COVID. Is that proof that books and bookshops will always have a place? I think if bookshops are well run, they have a place for sure. And I think the, the really positive thing of the, of the Waterstones experience is we can run a really successful bookshop in Barrow in Furness. Tell me how many other retailers can do that. We can run a really successful bookshop in in high streets where there are quite literally no other retailers maybe there's a pharmacy chain maybe there's a greg's or a sandwich place there's fewer and fewer of them but maybe there's a bank and there's a bookshop and it's doing perfectly well it's part of the community people come into it all ages shop into it the kids enjoy it young adults enjoy it school as school ends at four o'clock the bookshop fills up Old people come into it, it's busy at the weekend. It's a social space as well as a, a as a commercial space. There just are not other retailers who can do it across and happily across the full spectrum of our high streets, the most deprived all the way to really the most overprivileged and, and wealthy and, and and leafy, as I say. We'll we'll do really well in those as well. And that's a very it's a great thing, but it's also from a sort of narrow business sense, that's a tremendous strength. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter 
off to lunch on Substack. There you can find bonus content as well as business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.